The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder, activist and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Back in the a, flesh this time. We, and we have a slightly noisy group of young folks behind us. Yes, so, all these. So there may be a bit of uh, background noise today. But students that's, from Swinburne. That's what it's all about in the cafe. But it's nice to be back in the cafe because I was on the road last week. In near Batemans Bay, and today I had my first ever radio interview from someone who listened to something on the podcast. So ABC South Coast said, I heard you talking about the Batemans Bay Soldiers Club, that private casino club. That was very interesting. Come and talk to us. So there and you what go. do they ask you? What do you think of Batemans Bay? Do you like Batemans Bay? No, no, no. I said it's, a, it's an appalling uh, private casino club and uh, they should donate the land to the real RSL and... You know, the government is renting a three-storey building off the, the private casino club. They're so rich. They've built this $30 million or $25 million office tower at the back of their pokies venue, and they're leasing it to the federal government and the state government. That's how rich they are. They've got net assets of $37 million. Anyway, I won't. That's all I'm saying on yeah, okay. today. Let's, let's, let's talk just, about the real uh, issue of the day. Which is the Fox settlement, which, um, I mean, I, I, uh, I yeah, I mean, I presume that, it's simply to keep Rupert off the stand, um, so he doesn't have to. Um, he doesn't have to testify. But the amount is um, seven hundred eighty-five million US or one point two uh, billion Australian. Uh, as I read, I actually read the Fox accounts this morning, and uh, they have, or, or at the at the last at the in the last balance sheet, they had five point two billion in US in cash. Yes, in the balance sheet. So it won't be a hardship for them. No, their, well, it's their profit, their, their actual net profit last year was one point two billion US. Yeah, yeah, so it's more than a, it's more than half a year's profit. But the market cap's about seventeen point seven billion US, and so it's it's almost five percent of market cap that they've had to shell out to stop the ninety two year old founder from getting on the stand and they're also protecting the talent they don't want Tucker Carlson or Sean no, Hannity but what, but why the did stand. they take so long to settle because they're well, always going to settle well they? this is the strategic mistake they made is Viet Din who's their chief legal officer and is also godfather to one of Lachlan Murdoch's uh, children and wrote the Patriot Act for George Bush's government so for um, yeah, the Bush government after September 11 he clearly did the classic lawyer we can beat them don't give him an inch. We'll take him on. We'll do it, Rupert. And it was disastrous advice because they lost the case after discovery with all those revelations and Rupert's two-day deposition, the sort of the private evidence. So it was already a disaster reputationally and now it's a financial disaster as well, whereas previously their plan was reputation disaster but not financial disaster. Now it's both. So they should have just settled for $50 million the day after Trump did the January 6th and gone, this is a disgrace, we're involved, 50 million, go away, Dominion, and get on with life. 
because the company's only worth 120 million dollars, and now they've got one point Australian. Now they've got 1.2 billion in the settlement. I mean, from a private equity point of view, it's a ten bagger on a piece of litigation. I didn't, I didn't know that. So uh, the, the Dominion has capitalised it. Well, it's at 100. I was looking at well, they, they bought it. The private equity firm Staple Street Capital. They invest in small companies, right? And and they only they got funds under management of 900 million. I looked at their website this morning. Dominion doesn't even feature in their sort of leading companies in the portfolio. And they've just achieved a settlement, which is almost the total value of funds under management. So <laughs> I suspect they will have had litigation funders who are sharing <laughs> some of the cost and some of the profit, just as Rupert might have had some insurance to cover it. But I think if that was the case, they would have disclosed that by now because they haven't even made a filing with the SEC, which is outrageous. They haven't done a material event you know, they've obviously said, well, we've told the market because the press knows. So there must be no insurance because otherwise you'd be saying net cost to profit, you know, less than 200 million, doesn't matter, yada, yada. But if you're feeling sorry for Rupert, just remember this, that he only owns 15% of the economic stock, 40% of the votes and 15% of the economic stock. And the family's worth 30 billion Aussie and 15% of this settlement is $175 million. So he's just handed over, the family's just handed over about 0.6 of 1% of their net wealth to make this go away. So it's a huge number, but the family is still now worth $29.4 billion And the question I suppose that's, uh, uh, that I think I know the answer to is whether this will make any kind of material difference to Fox and the Murdochs in general going forward. I mean, and the answer, I believe, is probably not. No, I mean, their grievance and fear machine is a proven massive profit earner, just stoking up fear. And so, I mean, last night I was watching Rowan Dean on Sky News and he was talking about the voice, you know, all the 24 voice people being on massive salaries, living in marble palaces, uh, consigning Indigenous Australians to tyranny under a communist plot. You know, I mean, it's just... Barking mad. So I don't think they're going to change their business model, but they will be regulated by the market. So when you do threaten them with litigation, they will settle more often and stuff. But, I mean, for me, I'm interested also as to whether the Murdochs will suffer a pay cut. They got 60 million Aussie between them last year and they've taken 1.5 billion from public companies in the last 22 years. But their pay should be cut to zero this year in some accountability for... You know, massive. You know, and, and Viet Din should Fat be sacked. Fat chance of that, Stephen. Viet Come Din on. should be sacked. I mean, there needs to be board accountability um, and cuts to bonus and things like that. But it's not a, not a normal company because it's a Murdoch gerrymander and they own forty percent of the of the votes. So they can just continue on as if nothing happens because they run it like a private company, even though they only there's eighty five percent of it is owned by ordinary other independent shareholders like me with my ten shares. And you're outraged. I'm I'm not happy, but. I've been banging on it for years, but there's nothing you can do because it's a gerrymander where they control the board, they control the votes, they control the remuneration committee, which approves their $1.5 billion in salary over 22 years when the Packer family always work for nothing. So, so, and I love the fact that the statement on the Fox Court website says um, it's an announcement by Fox News Media. So, you know, they haven't said Fox Corporation controlled no. by the Murlocs with co-executive chairs. They've, they've attributed this to Fox News Media like it's some sort of and genius I think subsidiary. They, I think they also said it's all in pursuit of their, their dedication to the highest uh, possible journalistic standards. 
Yeah, I mean, which, uh, is, which is an absolute joke. And the other one is that, <laughs> that instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial, we now allow the country to move forward from these issues. So they've done it for the, the ca- nation. They've done, they've it, for done the it for the nation, not for the company. I know. Not for the Murloc reputation. I, I mean, they're a disgrace. Love that. They're an absolute disgrace. Okay, listen, we've got so many questions. We need to just go straight to questions after whatever it is, five or seven minutes of uh, discussion about Rupert. Um, and uh, let's just do that. So, Brad, is the first question we got t- today. Congratulations on your entertaining and informative podcast. Thank you, Brad. Um, I would be interested to know, what would the team consider to be a sustainable, reasonably non-inflationary increase in wages to, say, June 30, 2023? Would 5% cause inflation pressure, even though it's below the headline inflation rate? Uh, well... Uh, the the headline inflation rate is relatively temporary, so um, that refers to the past, whereas wage increases apply to the future. So the question is, what is the inflation rate going to be after July the 1st or June the 30th, 2023? And the answer is probably uh, less than five. Yeah. So a 5% pay rise probably, a general pay rise probably would be inflationary. And therefore won't happen. And therefore won't happen, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the minimum wage went up by 5.2% last year to $21.38 an hour. And that was – Albo was very happy that with his gold coin that he was waving during the election campaign. What would you be happy with this year? Well, I, I reckon you could do 4% on top of that this year. We'll know by mid-June, which is maybe an extra 86 cents but you can't keep matching inflation when it's this high. Like, for instance, we have a rate capping environment with Victorian councils and the government has only let us put the rates up by 3.5%. I'm on the library board and we've certainly offered nothing like 5% in the wage rise, which perhaps explains why the enterprise agreement expired on you stingy bastards. June 2020 and still hasn't been settled and we've got Come protected on. actions with, with not strikes. But Cough up. Cough well, up, Stephen. Come on. I'm only one of eight directors on the library board and um, we are very conscious of saving the ratepayers' money and we still haven't got agreement with our staff who are probably suffering under inflation. Steve says, four years ago I bought 500 units of the Vanguard Australian Government Index ETF, code VGB, in the expectation of receiving a regular distribution of the modest income. Given interest rate rises through the year, I was expecting the ETF unit price to fall. However, I was not expecting Vanguard to suspend distribution payments for four consecutive quarters and counting. What is going on? Now, I did have a look at this, and and Steve is right that VGB, which has got the fund value of $888 has not paid a dividend since... April Fool's Day last year when they paid a miserable 9.9 cents. Have they explained why not? Well, I looked at the accounts and I did I did buy $500 worth of these things yesterday, my first ever ETF investment, Alan, and I now realise I obviously won't be able to go to the AGM because they don't have them, but I, I'm now on the register and I looked at the accounts and they have been declaring modest losses. I think they lost about $9 million. So clearly they have an approach of when we're not making a profit, we suspend the dividends. And they have paid distributions as high as 59 cents a quarter. But the stock's trading at $47 or thereabouts, or the, the, the unit. It's come off from a high of $54 in 2019. But the investors are not happy because 
more people are buying in. They had 126 million positive cash flow last year because they had 288 million of applications to buy in and only 162 million in redemption. So people are clearly not upset. They're still aren't buying they supposed in. To, aren't they supposed to just pass on the dividends they receive? Well, I think they, they can choose. I mean, I mean, but why do you? I mean, their earnings were negative because they had they had the unrealised losses on the on the bond prices falling. Oh, yeah. But I think the thing to remember is that Warren Buffett only paid one dividend ever in 1967, and that was when he ducked out to the toilet at the board meeting and they snuck a dividend through. And his shares are now at US four hundred ninety six thousand three hundred dollars, so the price of a modest Australian house. So the fact that Vanguard is not paying a distribution means that the share price is higher than it would otherwise be because they've retained value in the stock. So, you you know, from Warren Buffett point of view, there's no dividends at all, but just watch your share price go up. So it doesn't know, really but, matter but, but that much whether but, they distribute or not. But Stephen, VGB is not Berkshire Hathaway. No. Anyway, no. Um, but uh, Lauren says, I'm a long-time listener and love the show. I'm currently carrying a considerable hex debt from the Australian Institute of Music. I was wondering if you think it's possible to negotiate a deal with the Australian Tax Office to pay it off. I'm no longer working and my husband is willing to make a one-off payment. For example, is it possible to offer a lump sum of half the amount to settle the debt? I'll never be able to pay it off. Surely they would consider accepting some money rather than none at all. I'd greatly appreciate any advice or insight on this matter. Thank you for your time and keep up the great work. Well, uh, you've got a long bloody answer written out there, Stephen, so I better let you go. But I just want to say that uh, a hex debt for a musician, not a good idea. Well, uh, I don't think musicians would ever expect to pay off their hex debt because they never, they'll never, they never make enough money. Yeah. Well, it's the never. old story. What, what do you never I mean, hear read out at a party? Would the banjo player please duck outside and move his Porsche, please? So... Musicians exactly. pay a paid an average of twenty grand a year. So, so it's pretty rough to not give them subsidised degrees. I don't reckon, reckon Lauren ought to worry. Just well, I mean, she, she carried the like sex debt till she till dies. Grave. Correct. She's got this hanging over her until she dies, and I reckon that's unfair. I think you should have a wave it at eighty, or you should be able to negotiate something. Or, but, but, I, I, don't, but, I mean, seventy-four billion is owed. But why How is many it hanging people over? People are going to die with this hanging over them. Well, but, you owe the government. You're a freeloader. You haven't paid for your degree. I don't think she should worry at all. Well, don't think of it hanging over. Just a, get on with life and forget about it. As the son of a it. piano teacher, I'm really glad she studied music and I don't like this idea of, of, of these indebted musicians. And I, I was researching this question. Do you know that the biggest individual hex debt is $737,000? Someone has done medicine, then law, then a master's, then a blah, then a this, and then another arts degree, and then archaeology, and they've been studying for 40 years. And they owe the government seven hundred and thirty-seven thousand dollars for tuition fees. Well, so uh, I think that's a model. I think that's that's a model for us all. You <laughs> but know, the government's to, now to not worry. It. Well, the lesson in that that is, person's is, not worried, right? Yeah. The lesson in that is is if your government don't offer an uncapped scheme. Oh yeah, because sure. it'll just get rorted to, to no, smithereens, well, like yeah, like well, the NDIS. That's true. But so now the government caps it, and you can't borrow more than one hundred and thirteen thousand for most oh, right. degrees. And 162000 for bigger things like medicine and dentistry and well, that's interesting. aviation and stuff. Yeah, so the government... Excellent research, Stephen. Yes. Well, I'm still furious that I started my degree in 1988, the year HEX was introduced. So my older sister's got all this subsidised education and I got this HEX debt, although Rupert did front pay some of it, which was very generous. But you've, have you still got a HEX debt? No, no, no. But It's but all gone. All gone. Oh, very good. But I worked and studied full time. But uh, anyway, when I did my degree, so Rupert did pay it up front, which was very kind of him. 
Yolanda, listening to your podcast this week, I heard again what I've been hearing a lot of, that there needs to be more building to meet demand as housing stock is inadequate and pushing up rents. But how does this tie in with what seems to be around 10% of unoccupied residential property around the nation? Uh, just in the building I live in, 10 out of 12 units are investments that are held empty, so that tallies with those stats. So, look, I did some research on this one too, and in the city of Manningham, according to the census, we have 48,744 residences, but 4,165 of them were empty on census night, which is 8.5%. So, Yolanda is right. They're all at the pub. Well... That is a surprisingly large statistic. If that is consistent across the country, if if nine percent of residences are not occupied, then there's a clear lot of bandwidth that can be utilised to deal with the current accommodation, rental, and housing crisis. Just to get it on with a bit of fixer uppering, stop people having unoccupied holiday homes, and we can manage this migration burst at the moment. No, but that's but but that's completely fallacious, if I may say. Because I'll let you say that. Why? Well, so the the the, <laughs> um, the the lack that we have is of houses that people can live in, right? In the right locations. Well, whatever. I mean, just just houses that people can move into and live in permanently, and that is not the houses that were empty on a census night or yeah. or, so, or empty at any particular night or anyone's holiday house. So most of them are. What are you saying there? Well. Most of them are not fit to be lived in. No, I it's think not is that. The, point. It's just the developers are waiting to move in, or well, yeah, whatever. I mean, they're, or they're owned, but they're owned by somebody who, for whatever reason, is not in there at the time. Yeah. Right. Well, that, I mean, what are you going to do? Sort of say to this person, "I'm sorry, uh, we're going to we're going to nationalise that house, well, no. and we're going to make sh- we're going to ma- allow someone to go in and live in it in well, your no. house permanently." No, no, well, well, look, there are that's some not gonna ha- that there is not going to happen. There are some tax carrots and sticks that are deployed for this issue. So councils in Victoria, some of them do have a loading on the rates bill for vacant land to stimulate the developers to actually not make it vacant anymore. The state government has introduced a foreign-owned unoccupied tax. So if you are one of the uh, international students and your parents buy the unit and it sits there empty in Carlton for six months, there's a loading, an extra tax you have to pay. Oh, fair enough. So they're trying... They're, I, I don't have a problem ta- with that. These that's are policies okay. to stimulate occupancy yeah, yeah, and okay. that's, that's good. We should do more of that. Yeah, sure. No, okay. 9% unoccupied is a surprisingly high number with our, our housing stock. Um, Ian says, thanks for the podcast. I just read Stephen's comment. I mean... Quote, I mean, the principle of you pay a tax when you realise an asset for the retail investor is absolutely everywhere in property and shares. Around 2003, I got the flick from the company I worked for and they kept me quiet with a 100,000 golden handshake in company shares. These shares were granted, but the share certificate did not arrive for four or five months, so I was unable to sell. ATO taxed me on the five trading day average leading up to my dismissal. Of course, the share price tanked over the period before they could be sold. I took the issue to our local federal MP, Brendan Nelson, at the time. <laughs> Brendan Nelson. I'm sure he was all over it, Ian. <laughs> he showed me this ugly big book of taxation law. Oh, so he did. He actually took out the taxation law and showed it to him. Goodness me. Uh uh, the question is, why doesn't federal government realise they can't keep lacking an additional superannuation, etc., complexity without revisiting the whole taxation re- regime, a.k.a. Ken Henry's review? 
Well, yeah, of course. Well, there's, um, I mean, there's a few there's a few things in that, but but Ian is right that the taxation on share options and shares in public companies, in my view, is quite punitive because you have to pay it up front, not when you sell the shares. So you often see the CEO share disclosure announcements saying, I've just been given my bonus shares and I've had to sell half of them to pay the tax bill because if they, they, they have to pay the tax up front even if they keep the shares. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, I suppose if people are paid bonuses in cash, you have to pay tax. But it does lead to a lot of share selling. And I personally think there should be some sort of different regime because what happened to Ian is right, that you get this, even six months before he even had access to the stock, he's been taxed. And we have a very high personal income tax regime in Australia relative to the very low uh, GST, consumption tax, And uh, that's why I'm dead against giving up on the stage three tax cuts because overall, our income tax regime is very high and this share rule is part of that punitively high regime, making life tough for the CEOs and the millionaires of Australia. I couldn't couldn't not disagree more with you, Stephen. (laughs) So you want higher taxes for income earners, for workers? Yes, I do, yeah. I think that our income taxes are too low. But the GST is just right, even though it's half the OECD average. Oh, yeah, look, I mean, I, I don't like GST as a, as a general rule. I think that uh, OECD companies, countries have introduced GSTs in order to save rich people from paying high income taxes because, um, you know, they can slip in GSTs more easily and they, they slug poor people more than rich people and so and I, you you know, I think it's part of the, I think it's all part of the plutocracy Stephen where the where a country the world is being run by rich people for their own benefit uh, and uh, not for poor people so I'm sorry Jeez, you, you, you I should don't be running Green Left Weekly or something Alan with this perspective goodness me I mean I reckon we need to have an inheritance tax but I do not want to put up income tax anymore I think we should be having higher Property taxes, it's ridiculous that you can live 724 years in the city of Manningham before you pay the value of your house in rates. That is an incredibly low percentage tax on $67 billion of so land get, and buildings in Manningham. So people, come, people, when you're at a party, they go, could Stephen Mayne come and please move his Porsche? <laughs> Do you know what the council... I get $37,000 as a poorly paid part-time pissant politician, PPPPP in Manningham. And uh, that's about three days' work. So, so you should you should be entirely in favour of people on one hundred eighty thousand paying more tax. I would have thought, so that you pay you and and, the, and not putting up the GST that you actually do pay to twenty five percent. Look, I mean, I, I think what's the matter like with the you, system Stephen? is that is that there's too many tax rorts, negative gearing, and super that the smart wealthy workers work the system, but the ordinary tradie or underground miner who is earning 200000 is paying 90000 or 80000 in tax, doesn't know how to play the system with the smart accountants and lawyers. So I think a lower thing for, for all, but less rorts and, and stuff in super and negative gearing. Next question. Jonathan, your turn. love the show. My last question two and a half years ago was whether or not I should fix my mortgage at 2%. Alan, you said yes. I'd be crazy not to, so I did, and I'm still enjoying my low fixed-rate loan today. Round of applause for the You're welcome. investment advice. You're welcome, John. Illegal investment advice from Alan. Very happy client there. It was general advice. General only. advice, only, of course. Yes. 
Now, he's got two questions. Um, we'll go to the first one. You mentioned last week that big super funds have been getting higher returns by using private equity and higher leveraged assets. What is the best way for me as an ordinary bloke to get increased leverage to shares or manage funds in a standard super account? I don't want an SMS. Hey, listen, could you tell those people to shut up? Look, it's a student meeting. Let, leave them alone. Can I transfer my super to a leveraged Australian super fund? I'm in my 40s, so I have a long-term horizon. So let's deal with that one first. And I'm not sure that there's too many super funds that offer special leveraged categories. I mean, you've got the growth category, which will have plenty of private equity, which is leveraged. But if you really want to get into leverage, then my suggestion is is use the negative gearing with property or take out a Comsec margin loan, which is what I do. I currently owe the Commonwealth Bank 10 grand on my $23,000 portfolio. So you can have direct leverage through your margin loan in your shares, but I don't think there's too many super funds as such that are offering no, they're not, there's not. dedicated no. high leverage, high risk um, portfolio. So what's the next question? Uh, number two, I've got some highly leveraged positively geared properties in my personal name. My income isn't high, so I'm relying on increased rental income and coming decades to pay off these investment property loans to benefit oh, from passive income. Bad luck for his tenants. <laughs> anyway. And then he's saying, over the last decade, rental income growth has been quite low at 1% to 2% a year, but in the last few years has been much higher, approximately 10%. What is your forecast in 10 years, over the next 10 years, for rental growth? Related to this, if a property rental growth remains lower than property capital growth in the longer term, then what will that mean for property yield investment? Will it reduce and become lower over time? Well, you're the crystal ball, man. What do you reckon, Alan? Well, I reckon if, if rentals keep increasing at 10% a year, we're in big trouble. So they won't. No. Um, They'll always be related to but it is the case. other assets. We, ha- we do have a shortage of housing, so I, I think that the, the uh, rents aren't going to stop rising in a hurry, uh, uh, housing approvals are falling. Completions are falling. The, yeah. I mean, the number of houses being built is declining. Yeah. So it is possible that you know the, the, the shortage of housing continues for a while. So you know. Yeah, you might but the more to... that rents go up, then the more people will be switched into buying and owning their own property rather than copying the dead money of rent. So they're all interrelated, the capital price, the rent, the interest rates, and there is a demand and supply factor which is driving rents higher at the moment, except in the office market where, where rents are going down because people are still working from home and half the office towers of Australia are still not very full. Which, and they, so they should be turned into apartments. I'm actually all for that. I'm trying to turn a pokies pub in Manningham into a library, and I agree. Well, I think you should turn your, some of your campaigning efforts to that. What do you reckon? Frank says, last week you were discussing the idea of using existing properties as a way of, speaking of which, existing properties as a way of addressing the right tight rental market as people renting out a room in their home and getting some tax base. I recently did this to help out a student, and it turned into a nightmare. <laughs> the worst part was discovering I had few rights to the property as the property owner and could be facing up to two years v and processes to evict. And, if, and he knew it. So the elephant in the room here is the complicated and unattractive regulations that now face landlords who do the right thing. Uh, good point. Yes, keep going. You well, gotta, I mean, that sounds like what the, the House of Horrors, someone presents as Captain Nice, and in the moment you've signed the lease, they bare their ugly teeth and turn into some sort of vampire. I mean, look, yes. Dan Andrews... Well, that's right. In, that happens. And, and this is the Lydia Thorpe Amendment. So when Lydia Thorpe was running for the Greens, 
In the 2017 Northcote state election, the by-election <laughs> campaign, Dan Andrews threw the kitchen sink of it, sink at it, and one of the big promises he made was was tenant rights, and he legislated much stronger rights. You know, like you, you, they can't say no to your cat and dog, and lotus periods, and all this stuff. And other states have followed in moving the dial. In towards tenants. tenants. That's right. And that's good at one level, but at another level, it's hurting supply because of stories like we've just heard from Frank. Which and is, that's right. And which is why uh, which is why a lot of people are moving their house onto Airbnb. Airbnb, where there are no such rules. That's yeah, right. So the regulators should always think about the famous unintended consequences. And that one of tougher or stronger rental rights has arguably crimped supply and boosted the short-term Airbnb market as an alternative. Uh, we have two. We have a couple of questions to, to go. Someone named Horse, apparently. <laughs> In today's day and age with data breaches at big organisations occurring every six weeks, surely it's only a matter of time before this happens at an online share stock exchange website. What are the backstops for an online hacking catastrophe in the world of online share trading? Surely it's worth paying the extra brokerage fee with Comsec for additional cybersecurity as well as your own chest number where you won't get lost if everything goes upside down if you had shares as a custodian like with platforms like Perla. So, well, of course. I mean, yeah, it's just yeah. like, it's like anything else. Um, you you want to go with with well run and governed and resourced organisations that will close their back doors from hackers, but we've seen some blue chips cop it, and often the bluer the chip, the more target they are for the Russians and others. And on having your own chess number, there's actually another reason for having your own chess number or hin number, not just about cybersecurity, but if you're in a pooled fund where you don't have your own chess number, you often won't be offered a share purchase plan or some of those investment opportunities. So. That's actually the real reason why you should always have your own account with your own chest number and hin, because otherwise, if you go into a pooled environment, you can be left out of the capital raising dance party when they offer share purchase plans. Um, last question from Tom. There is something about the property market I can't reconcile. Immigration is high, property building costs are up, and builders are going out of business. We have extremely low rental vacancies across the capitals, and there are endless stories about how dire the rental market is. The price of rentals is skyrocketing, even causing concern about homelessness increasing. Yes, the thinking is that property values probably have further to fall. I understand that the rental market and the property market are different, but they both rely on the same underlying asset. The only way I can see, the only way I see property values going up, going is up. What am I missing? Well, uh, I don't think you're missing anything, Tom, because property values are going up again. They, I mean, not everywhere, but they're up 1.4% in Sydney in March. Uh, they're up less than 1% in Melbourne, but still, it only, looks, I mean, it looks like, for the moment at least, the property market, the housing prices have bottomed. Yeah, and residential only fell 10% from top to bottom in this cycle before they turned again. So that was that was $10 trillion down to $9 trillion in sort of total value of all housing stock in Australia. But when we're talking about property values, well, I'll tell you what, office property values are not going up. They're still in a world of pain. And shopping centre capital values are not going up. GPT, with their AGMs coming up, I'll be getting stuck into them about their excessive book values, uh, which the market doesn't believe. Centre Group, Westfield, is still trading at a big discount to their claimed values. So... In the residential category, yes, they're going up because of a supply squeeze. But 
you know, it's not going to keep going up that much because they're already ridiculously overpriced anyway. And in my view, they should have fallen far more than 10%. To I mean, it, it is true. Tom's right that there is a bit of a disconnect. There is a disconnect between rental and house prices, even though house well, prices are going up. Bottom. Rents are going up faster than house prices because people are needing a sh- desperate for a short-term fix and they can rent in the short term, whereas you can't buy as quickly. Yeah. So. And the other thing to remember, Tom, is that uh, the tenancy is basically a service and a residential house is an asset. So they are different things. They are based on the same underlying asset, but the service of renting um, depends on supply and demand uh, of that particular service, not the underly- not necessarily the underlying asset. So, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to head down a rabbit hole here, but... Um, yeah, they aren't exactly the same things. Well, I'll say, finally on property as well, I love a company that owns their own property because they are inher- they have this inherent value. So a Harvey Norman, who's got $2.5 billion or $3 billion of properties, or even better, Reese Plumbing, they own every single Reese outlet. They own them. That's the policy. So if the business goes bad, you've got this magnificent billion-dollar-plus um, land bank. And just look at McDonald's. They are the number one. They do not rent. McDonald's, as policy, does not pay rent. They have security of freehold. And um, there's something to be said for that. Very good. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with Stephen Main again. What? Where's my overwork I'm sick bonus? Of you. I'm sick of you, I'm Stephen. sick of you, pal. <laughs> When's Stephen? James back from his... Long holiday? Is he back know. in we're, two weeks? Is he Greg, okay? All right. Must be another two weeks. Well, we're back. So on send Wednesday. in a question and we'll answer it together. Now we actually really do like each other a lot, and we'll actually. have more than one topic. We won't just do Fox, but we had eighteen questions and about another another, another two twenty came in yesterday. In. We can't. So we're just getting we're, we're getting swamped by questions. Run with questions. So do the Twitter policy of two hundred and eighty characters. Yes, no keep war the, and keep peace questions. essays, and we'll deal with as many as we can. And the, the email for the questions is themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. So um, I'm Alan Cole, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen May, contributor at Eureka, founder of Crikey, shareholder activist, city of Manningham councillor. And I'd also like to thank our marvellous producer, Greg Demopoulos, and the public company InvestSmart, which owns this podcast and allows this to all happen. Over and out.